0: How about oh, wow? You think you know, and then uh, you can be mistaken. That's a good Bible principle. The way we'll start our class today. Um, I wanted to give you this kind of a program note, if you will. We are studying through the Book of Psalms. Uh, we, are, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 51, that's where we're going to be here in just a few minutes. In uh, the first week in December starts a new quarter. December through February. Uh, And uh, we are always trying to plan well ahead. Uh, We have um, we try to chart out and to to do justice when we're doing a textual study. Uh, You can appreciate up front the even with a teacher that's not slow like me. You can appreciate how hard it is to go uh, too fast in the Book of Psalms. There's 150 chapters, longest book in the Bible. Uh, I would like to get somewhere around chapter 75 by the end of this quarter. But here's what's going to happen. December through February. We're going to have a new class in here. Uh, I'm going to continue to teach Psalms, but I'll be teaching it on Wednesday night in the multi-purpose room. If you're newer and you ever hear MPR, uh, that's what that means, multi-purpose room. And it's just that big space over there that we use for many different reasons, and that's the name of it. Um, But that's where we'll have our Psalms class, and we'll cover the second half of the book of Psalms uh, at that particular time. Um, If you begin to study in ancient history, there are biographies that have been uncovered through documents. Uh, And uh, as you look at some of the greatest leaders of the ancient world, uh, they are such that there are annals or there are uh, uh, biographies that are written about them. And what's interesting about those ancient biographies, if we're talking about Asher Banner Paul or Sennacherib uh, or uh, Cyrus the Great or Nebuchadnezzar, any of the big uh, powerful leaders of the world, and we can read from other sources that they were at times vicious. Uh, They killed people in some of the most inhumane ways possible. They were morally depraved. Same would be true of a lot of our Roman emperors. But official biographers, how do you think they painted their lives? Pristine. Um, Just kind of conveniently looking over whatever uh, character flaws there were. I mean, we're talking about uh, genocide. We're talking about infanticide um, and uh, just depravity in their personal lives. You look at several of the Roman emperors and uh, their their moral depravity. This was kind of whitewashed. Now I want to do a little exercise with you before we get to where we're going this morning. And I I want you to think specifically in the subject matter of their sin, okay? Noah, can you think of any sin that Noah was known for? Now Noah was the man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was the man who in the world was so wicked, God was sorry that he had made man, and he determined that he was going to destroy all of mankind. But Noah was so obedient. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 6 and the the commands that he obeyed. But can you think of a sin associated with Noah? His drunkenness. All right, I do if you want to take note of this. Go to Genesis chapter 9. You notice we didn't start with Adam. Adam is the, the first man, but... Well, that's probably what we associate most with him is, is the sin that he committed alongside of Eve. How about Abraham? The father of the faithful. The one who left his homeland and traveled in a place he didn't know because God told him to go there. Who, in Genesis 22, when God said take that son of promise and deliver him up as a sacrifice, he, was, he drew the knife. He was going to do it. Because he knew God could bring him back from the dead. That's powerful faith. What do we know about Abraham? He he lied. And I saw that uh, Roger wasn't giving me the peace sign. He was telling me not once, but twice. Now, why did he lie? Anybody remember that part of the story? Okay. All right. So fear. Fear, discovery. So he lies. Yes, sir, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, who wants to do a business with a guy like that? Oh, technically, you know, that sounds like maybe some in our political realm, right? I mean, you might find some kernel of way in which you could spin that into truth, but willfully deceived him, even with some truth. Yeah. That's right. And I want you to think about that in terms of how that was a failure of faith from the father of the faithful. And, and we can appreciate that, okay? Um, how about Jacob? You know, Jacob was renamed what by God? Israel. He's synonymous through his sons with the nation of Israel. The tribes are going to be named for his sons. And certainly there's so much remarkably good about Jacob. Can you think of anything with regard to Jacob? With, with his birth. Right, so really, it's with Jacob. It's where do we begin, right? There's the, there's the theft. There's the There's the deception. Even further down the line, he's, he's not really our gold standard for dads, is he? The favoritism. He creates the tension that helps Joseph get sold into slavery. Moses. Moses is God's anoint the most humble man on the earth. The one God chose in the third Quarter, the, the last third of his life to lead the children of Israel into the land of promise. And there is so much remarkable good. His, his character is sterling. He comes back convicted when he sees the children of Israel engaging in the worship of the golden calf. And, he, and when God says, um, before he finds that out, he says, I'm going to destroy them and start over. And what does Moses say? Take, take me out of the book of life. If you will please save them. How about Moses? Okay, let's go back early in the the, the, the record. He's a, he's a murderer. He runs away. How about when God comes to him and says, I want you to be my leader? At least moral hesitancy. But he murders. You, you get the point. You see where I'm going. We could go further, right? The man who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament to preach first to the Jews and also to the Gentiles, Acts 2, Acts 10. Who am I talking about? Peter, how about him? Okay, we can get to the big one right there in Matthew chapter 26 about verse 75 when he uh, denies the Lord three times on the same night that he says, "I'll I'll die for you first before I do that. There are other places where he shows an intemperance. He is right there in the midst of all the disciples who's wanting to know, as Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to the cross, I'm about to give my life. When they hear that, Do you know the next argument they have? Perhaps on the same mile of the journey. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Talk about a massive disconnect. Outside of Christ, the greatest preacher that ever lived, who do you think that was in your mind? That'd be Paul. Anything you might tie to Paul by way of sin? He he wreaked havoc. He persecuted the church. My point in all of this is... One of the great proofs for inspiration that we often point to with the Bible is that it does not hide the flaws of its heroes from the beginning to the end. And nowhere is that more true than in the case of David. David is in the Old Testament and the New Testament called by God, classified as the man after God's own heart. If you think about the man that served before him, Saul, Saul was, at the beginning, humble. He was a good-looking man. He was taller than the rest of his nation. He's the prototypical king. He's who you would think you would want to sit on your throne if you want to demonstrate greatness to the rest of the world as they're trying to become this growing nation. But Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, is rejected because of his rebellion, because of his disobedience. And God says, I'm going to re- I rejected him, and I'm going to choose one after my own heart. And you think about David and how David comes to embrace this anointing who has multiple opportunities to kill Saul when Saul's the king and Saul's trying to kill him actively. David shows remarkable restraint and deference to the will of God. There are so many occasions as you read through. Really, you start reading about David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and you carry that all the way through to 2 Samuel chapter 10, and you have all of these episodes, all these incidents where David is, is firmly grabbing the moral high ground. If it's the way it's supposed to be done, that's the way that he's doing it. So, what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11? You, you know, maybe you don't have all those verses memorized, but in the context of what we're talking about, you know what happens. You know about David's life, you know what happens in 2 Samuel 11. All the kings go out to war that time of year, David stays behind, he sees Bathsheba on the roof, he uh, lusts for her, he calls for her, he brings her to him. Uh, the problem is what? She's already married. In fact, you look through the Bible and how almost exclusively whenever Bathsheba is mentioned in Scripture, she's not David's wife, whose wife is she? Forever thereafter, Uriah's. Gets her pregnant while Uriah is valiantly fighting for the army of Israel. And you know all the deception that takes place and how David tries to create a circumstance to where Uriah will come off the battlefield and will go and he will sleep with his wife and he can cover his tracks. And yet Uriah was such an honorable man that there's no way that he can make this happen. And so now you've got a pregnant woman and you've got a man that you can't pin that on and so you've got to to resolve the situation. And so what does the man after God's own heart in this moment do? You might as well say it. He signs his death warrant through Joab. And in the heat of the battle, he has, he has Uriah up against the wall against the Philistines, and the Philistines take his life. David is so torn up, he comes back and he immediately repents, right? I know it's early on a Sunday morning. I'm testing your Bible knowledge. What does he do? After Joab comes back and says, the war went this way, And then when David does some follow-up, he says, and Uriah the Hittite is also dead. What's David's next move? He takes her, brings her to him, marries her. Remember, they're with child. So what happens nine months later? Baby's born. Bathsheba's Mrs. David. And then David's starting to feel a little prick of conscience, right? No. No. What turns the tide? What, what, let's do it in sequential order. So after David takes her about a year later, what happens? Somebody said it? Well, before that, Nathan the prophet comes and tells a tale of, of uh, a great interest to a shepherd king. You know, you, you want to you get a man's attention. You talk about what he knows very well. And David loves sheep. And so Nathan comes and tells this tale. You know the tale about the rich man who had a neighbor, poor man, who had one uh, one little ewe lamb. He has an abundance of sheep. He has to play host. Somebody's coming to his house, the rich man's house. And so instead of taking from his innumerable sheep, now you think about that, David has right to any number of women. This is the Old Covenant. Moses, because of the hardness of their heart, allowed them to be married to more than one wife. Jesus restores the marriage uh, pattern in Matthew chapter 19. But at this time, it's okay under the... Law of Moses for him to have legitimate wives. Bathsheba's not one of those. She's Uriah's precious ewe lamb. And when David is so blind in his anger because he's going to take care of of sheep and, and such an offense makes him say, I want that man, that man should die and pay fourfold. And Nathan says. And of course, we talked about this in an earlier class. We talked about the fourfold part of that. That's the background to Psalm chapter 51. What I want us to do, um, let me see if I have control of the, of the PowerPoint or not. We'll see here in just a second. I want us to go to Psalm chapter 51. I'll call this the road back to God. This is the Psalm of repentance. Now, if I were to ask you, just think for a moment. If you were to list, this, when you say the Psalms that are very familiar to me, the Psalms that we all know well, which Psalms come to your mind? Psalm 23, Psalm 1, the kind of the, it, it is really the blueprint. It's the it tells you how the psalms are going to go. Psalm 1, Psalm 23, okay, certainly 51, okay, okay. Now you're showing me where your interest lies. There's a kind of historical uh, psalm there. Psalm 100 the psalm of praise. Any Psalm 119? Anybody know what it's kind of known for? 176 verses. It's a psalm in praise of the word. And you know, Psalm 23, what is it about? The Lord's what? The Lord's my shepherd. Okay. What's Psalm 51 about? Repentance. Very good. All right, so let's go ahead and read that really quickly. Psalm chapter 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a, a steadfast spirit within me, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, the young bulls will be offered on your altar. What I want you to do for just a moment is to, first of all, I would say, it's probably true, as I look across this entire auditorium, that there is nobody who has had a sin moment on the magnitude or scale of David. When you consider how visible he was and you consider how many people were favorably influenced by David, he was really up on a pedestal spiritually. And I think sometimes the more visible and the more good that we're done that's seen by more people, the the more devastating it is for our influence and the influence of the cause of our Lord When there's sin in that situation. But what I want you to do is something that may be kind of difficult to do. I want you to think for a moment back on your life up to this moment and think, if you can, about what comes the closest to being your David moment. Maybe a private thing that's only known to a small number of folks. I guess it's possible that it's so small that it's only known by you and God, but for most of us, I would say we've had our David moments, but at least moment, where we did something on such a scale or magnitude that we spent a lot of days after that day looking back over it, thinking about it. And I don't know if you've ever done this. Maybe if you've done something to that degree, That you've spent some time almost wishing, God, if there was some way I could go back and I could go through time knowing what I know or even knowing in that moment that it was wrong to do and not done it. Now I would say that would probably take in at least the majority, if I dare say, pretty close to all of us. We've had a moment like that. Now normally, and I think this is good, that we need to emphasize the grace and the forgiveness of our Lord. And we're going to do that in this psalm because David does that. But before we get there, I want us to think about how we ought to feel about or we, how we felt about whatever that thing was. That you lost time and you spent thinking about and how it has, has really racked you with some guilt. Because I think that's the value of this psalm. The value of this psalm is for us to see through one of the Old Testament's greatest heroes, a man who fell from such great heights, who did such a devastating thing. He caused the enemies of Israel to rejoice because of what he did. He takes a man's life. He takes a man's wife. And he's going to bear the consequences of that, certainly, for the rest of his life. So what do we do when we face our own David moments? What's the road back to God? So I want to take some time to look at that. Let's look at just maybe about four things that can help us in this particular psalm. If we're going to make the road back to God, the first thing that we have got to do is we have got to acknowledge what we have done. So how does David do that in this psalm? How does he acknowledge what he's done? My sin is ever before me. You know, when the Bible talks about how we handle offenses in the body of Christ, let's say that you're a child of God, which David is, and you sin in a public way. What's God's way of, of taking care of that? Let's say that you've defamed the name of the Lord out in the world. You ever heard the illustration about the bag of feathers? About the boy who, who had done so terribly? He was going around and he was lying everywhere in his community, and his dad shows him the lesson of how you take care of that. He says, What I want you to do is to go and take a feather and put it on the doormat of every house uh, on our street. Long street, several houses. He goes and he does that, and he comes back home, and his dad says, Now I want you to go and I want you to collect every one of those feathers. So, how, how likely do you think it's going to be that he's going to be able to collect all those feathers? Man, here in Kentucky, we'd certainly appreciate that. Just a little, those winds. That, we built, put up a greenhouse. It's one of those prefab deals. We learned better. And uh, we did put some anchors in the ground, but we had one of those renowned Kentucky winds, and it flattened that greenhouse in no time. So the, think about a Kentucky wind. Is he going to be able to go and get all those feathers back? How'd he get the feathers back? Well, what was the dad's point? You lie. You can't take back the lies. You can't take back the damage the lies do. All right, so let's say that we in some way hurt the the cause of Christ, the bride of Christ, publicly. How do we take care of that? Is that something that you and God can take care of privately? Is there anything else that, any other responsibility you have besides you and God? So that's what, so go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and see how, here's a man who has his father's wife. Uh, Paul wants that dealt with publicly. Alright? And so there there has to be some kind of acknowledgement of because I can't go to every single person. Let's say somebody's embezzled in town. How do you tell everybody in Bowling Green, I'm sorry for embezzling? Well, you, you try to make that right as, as best you can, as publicly as you can. I don't know if you you know how how to what extent, but here's here's David. And he has sinned, and he's acknowledging that sin. Um you ever heard somebody who's come forward and they said, if I have hurt anybody, then I'm sorry. Who maybe has done something very specific and very damaging. We want to make sure that we have a humility that owns up to what it is that we've done. And well, here's what you find with David. He's not defensive. He's not proud. He's not self-excusing. He lays his heart bare in front of the all-seeing eyes and he freely and he frankly confesses his sin and he calls his his wrongdoing several things if you can look especially in the first part of the psalm how does David describe his actions what words does he use Okay, so let's kind of make a little list here transgressions that's verse 1 and verse 3 sin verse 2, 3, 5 and 9 iniquity verse 2, 5 and 9 I see two more how about verse 4 I know some of this will depend on your translation. Sin, evil. evil, all right. So evil, verse four. How about verse fourteen? All right. So it depends on your translation. The, the guilt of bloodshed, blood guiltiness. Anybody have that as their translation? So why would Paul? I'm sorry. Why would David use all these different words if it's all describing the same thing? It's an interesting thing about sin is that. Sin has various characteristics. So let's think about it for a moment. What does the word transgression mean to you? What does it mean to transgress? To go against. Alright, so we're thinking maybe in terms of law breaking, right? Uh, the, the, the Hebrew lexicons will call it crime or offenses. So this legal idea that I have committed crime against God and against man, I have offended Alright, so what David did with Uriah, Bathsheba, in the sight of all Israel was a crime and an offense against heaven and against earth. Alright, but then he calls it iniquity. What does the word iniquity mean to you? It's a little tougher. It's the one we know, but we really have a little harder time defining. The word literally means to bend. It means to twist. It means to deviate from the way. So let's think about the fact that there's a road between us and heaven. And so iniquity has the idea of taking an unauthorized detour. And that detour is not going to get you ultimately to the destination. All right. So David calls what he did not only a crime and offense against heaven and against earth, but it's a detour from the path of righteousness. How about sin? What does the word sin mean to you? Okay, a transgression of God's, law. Violation of God's law. violation of God's law. The word very literally means to miss the mark. So you think about drawing back an, uh, a bow and you're shooting at a target and you miss the target. That's, that's what sin is. It, it means to uh, do wrong. How about evil in verse 4? How would you define it, evil? Okay. So you think about... Maybe you think more in terms of society. What it means is to do bad. It means to treat badly. Alright, so it's, it's, what's its opposite? Evil and good. So it's, it's the devo- being devoid of good. Doing what's the opposite of that. And then blood guiltiness. That one pretty well defines itself. And this has specific reference to what? Uriah's death. Alright. So here's the thing. Spiritual healing is impossible if we don't first go through this exercise. If we're going to come back home to God, we have got to acknowledge what what we have done. I don't think anybody is ever going to obey the gospel who doesn't come to terms with the reality of this in their lives. And any time that we miss God's mark, any time that we don't do what God says in His Word that we are supposed to do, or when we cross the line or we violate what God says to do, if we don't realize the ramifications, the impact of that, I'm certain that no one will genuinely repent and be baptized to have their sins forgiven. In the same way, if we're living actively, willfully in sin, that's how Hebrews 10 verse 26 would put it, and we're living like the world, we're living in the darkness, we're not walking in the light anymore, 1 John 1, 6 and 7 I am convicted that nobody will leave that place and come back to being right with God until they come face to face with his sin. Now, Nathan, when he comes to David, doesn't know how David's going to respond. We know other kings later after David who, when they're confronted with their sin, you remember when Jeremiah comes to Jehoiakim and he tells him about his sin? Do you remember what Jehoiakim does? He does do that. This is in, um, I think it's in Jeremiah 38. You can check me if not. Jeremiah's only got 52 chapters. it only take you about three or four days to read it. He takes a penknife and he cuts it in his winter house. The prophecy that comes by Hilkiah the scribe. You know what he does with it, right? I don't like what you have to say to me, so I'm going to cut it out of the word and I'm going to burn it in the fire. By the way, Jeremiah gives Hilkiah that one and then some more on top of that for Jehoiakim. David could have done that. David could have said, I, What I did wasn't so bad. It, it, it wasn't, it, you know, it's, it's in the eyes of the beholder. It, it's, I was justified, rationalized, excused in some way, as many in the Bible do. But David, in order to come back to God, has to come face to face with what he's done and to realize how horrible it was. Now, that can't be the last step, and a lot of times that's what people do. They let their sin, their past define them, their guilt so overwhelm them that they can never move forward and to come back to God. But it's a necessary first step. Acknowledge what you've done. Alright. Any thoughts about that before we move on to step number two in the process? Alright, now listen, let me say this so, so I'm not misunderstood. Can, that be, can there be extremes at either end of this? Sure, you could rationalize and never take on if you ever known anybody who never done anything wrong, it's always everybody else. That's an extreme condition of heart that is not a heart after God's own heart. If that's, a, if that's a weakness that you struggle with, you need to work on that. But you also got the other end. What's the other extreme? God will never forgive me. This is just too horrible. I've gone too far, I've been going too long. This is too terrible. And you know what? They'll, they'll, they'll try to make things right. And they maybe have done everything that God wants them to do. And now five years later, you know what they're doing every day? They're pulling that thing out of their little hope chest or whatever it is. And they're living with it every day. That is not spiritually healthy or spiritually strong. We're not making God feel better toward us by pulling up things he's already forgiven us of. So what we want to do is respond as David did. The first thing is take ownership of it. Really see how terrible it is. And then number two, this is powerful as part of the road back home. You've got to understand what God can do. And I want you to see how much this is an emphasis on this particular psalm. And um, think about the fact that Satan is very pleased for us to do that first step. He doesn't mind if you acknowledge what you've done wrong. He wants you to stay there though. Um, I want you to notice what David does though he focuses on God's forgiving qualities can you find any of those in this psalm look back through the psalms and see how God's nature is described here how's God's forgiveness pictured for us start in verse 1 loving and kindness. Love and kindness verse 1 what else tender mercies, tender mercies. some of your versions say, may say compassion verse 1 what else Okay, see the justice of God's not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. Because God is just and the justifier of those who come to Him. Look at Hebrews 2 and verse 18 or 1 John 1 in verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Good. What else? See anything else in, the, in this psalm? Okay, we're going to get to some of those actions, but that's that's a powerful point. Toward the end of the Psalm. David talks about your righteousness, verse 14, and your favor, verse 18. All right, so David is determined he's going to come back home. And part of that is acknowledging and understanding what God can do. And God has these forgiving qualities. God will demonstrate loving kindness in response to your sin that you turn away from. He will show you tender mercy and compassion. He will show you His righteousness. He will make you right. And He will show you favor. I don't know what it is. That's in your little uh, category we talked about at the beginning of this lesson. It doesn't matter. You turn away from that and you turn back to Him. doesn't matter how terrible it was, how many people know about it. That's what God will do in His forgiveness. All right. But also He appeals to God's forgiving actions. And that's what Tom was helping us with. For the sake of time, let me just kind of walk you through the psalm and see them. He says, be gracious to me. He expects and asks for God to show grace, verse 1. Wash me, verse 2. Cleanse me, verse 2. Purify me, verse 7. Wash me, verse 7. Make me, verse 8. Create in me, verse 10. Renew me, verse 10. Do not cast me, verse 11. Take not from me, verse 11 restore to me, verse 12, sustain me, verse 12, deliver me, verse 14, and open my lips, verse 15. What does that tell you about God and your sin? Say it again, Martha. He's, he's forgiven. Is there any doubt in your mind that David has been absolved from the, the, the guilt of his sin? Of course, as we've already said, not the consequences. He's going to feel that in some way for the rest of his life. He's going to have the most dysfunctional home of any righteous person in the entire Bible. And yet, where does he stand with God after Nathan comes to him and he repents of his sin? Where is he? On the Lord's left hand or the Lord's right hand? Now, I want you to think about somebody who's hurt you in some way and who has repented and and done their very best to make things right with you. And they follow this biblical pattern. Are they right with God or not right with God? And that one's a little harder than taking David who lived 50, you know, uh, 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 a thousand years before Christ. But you still can do it, can't you? I'm talking about even if it's your spouse, your parent, your child. You know where it's the hardest? That God can be gracious to you and wash you and cleanse you when you have turned away from your sin. I don't know how many times I've had folks in my office, on the phone, or in some way discussing with me and just saying, I just, I know he can't forgive me. And I think it's part of this that causes people who, I've known righteous individuals in their 70s and 80s who are dying, terminal, and you sit down and you talk with them and they and they speak in terms of doubt about where they're going eternally. Maybe it's because we've not gotten a hold of who is involved in our righteousness, in our salvation? It's not a trick question. Are we involved in it? Absolutely. That's verses one through four. Who else? God. Do we believe the promises of God? Do we believe? I think Hira uh, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Did, did you know? You've heard, I'm sure, somebody preach about Jeffrey Dahmer. You've heard that story before a couple of weeks ago. I knew the preacher, Roy Ratcliffe, that that studied with Jeffrey Dahmer. Went in, and, and really, I'm not going to talk about it. But you can look into his life, and you can tell the some of the worst things that a person could do. Roy Ratcliffe goes, a woman is a pen pal with Jeffrey Dahmer and starts to get his interest in spiritual things. Uh, Roy Ratcliffe goes in, he does the Bible study with Jeffrey Dahmer and uh, studies with him, he obeys the gospel. I've got Roy Ratcliffe's book in my uh, library. Christian Chronicle did an extensive write-up on that. There was follow-up that was done with Jeffrey Dahmer. And um, now, of course, Jeffrey dealt with guilt over all that he had done. He was beaten to death not long after he became a Christian in a bathroom. And this is the preacher's Bible class teacher's 21st century greatest illustration that we can use. Let me ask you, do you believe that if Jeffrey Dahmer was sincere in his obedience to the gospel and to the very best of his ability strove to walk in the light, do you believe that he died right with God when he was killed in that bathroom? Do you have even a little bit of doubt? And that's typically what we say. And we can do that with everybody else's. You know where we have the the equivocation and the doubt? About ourselves. Why is that? Okay, but we know Jeffrey Dahmer's human. We know that our spouses or kids are human. Yes, ma'am? That's it. Great minds think alike. Who I, whose sins do I know better, more intimately, more fully, in a more vivid color and detail than anybody else's? I know, I know everything I thought, leading up to doing what I knew I shouldn't do or not doing the thing that I knew that God wanted me to do. I, I know the whole I was there for every bit of it. and it was inexcusable. Shouldn't have done it. I went against my conscience. And how could God forgive that? I know that I was less than honorable. I know that I was. I know who I was and how I was. But this is this depends on the promises and the power and the integrity of God. I don't I, I'm not encouraging you not to keep a heart soft to sin and not to keep a sharp conscience. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we can dull our conscience and we can get to that place that we talked about at the beginning where we we rationalize and we justify and we deny the presence of sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 says that is a terrible spiritual place to be. Not talking about that. That's a different issue. This issue is handling things the way God says to handle them and still hanging on to the guilt. Trust the promise and the power of God that if you turn away from that, he will forgive. And I know I appreciate our humility, but let's try to cultivate a heart and a spirit that says, when asked, are you right with God? If you, if you have, you're striving to walk in the light, they say yes. And I'm confident. I, I think our, our religious neighbors teach, once saved, always saved. that say you cannot fall from grace. But you know, you don't have to fall from grace. You're not in and out of grace from one moment to the next. And finding that and understanding that balance is so important to our being able to navigate the sin that does come up in our life and the trials and difficulties of it. All right. I'm sorry. The preacher went to preaching and he stopped teaching, but I I feel like that's something that we can't emphasize enough. Anything that you want to add to that? I'm sure you can say it a lot better than I did. All right. Number three, do what you must do. So here's something else that happens when we're struggling with overcoming sin in our lives. We, we're trying to move past sin. We're trying to return to serving God. What we may want is a to-do list. We may want a to-do list. And that can be a good thing. That's what David wants here. He wants to know what he can do to kind of put this past behind him and move in the right direction. He's full of resolve. He's thinking ahead. And so he uses words like this, verse 13 and 14, then verse 4 and verse 15 that verse 13 i will verse 7 i shall be i want you to think about your sinful past how does it compare to david's how does it compare to peter's or paul's each of these men refused to be defined by their past and they depended instead on their prospects in the future and so tied to that are the fruits of repentance they indicate he indicates a change He understands it's not just outward actions, but it's driven by a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And so when I have what David had, that broken heart, I'm going to say, "All right, God, what can I do now? Not to get back into your favor, but so that I can return. So that I can do what you want me to do. I wasn't living right, now I want to. And then the last thing he did to make it back to God is he helps others do what they should do. So in this process of dealing with our sin it doesn't stop with us it's not all about us David in the last six verses of this psalm talks about what he's going to help everybody else to do when, when we sin we, we're spiritually wounded and when we go to the great physician and he heals us what God wants us to do is to then find others who've been broken and to help them to come to healing you know I love to read biographies. Um, David McCullough is one of my favorite writers. He's, I guess, he's passed on now, but he can—he's one of those few guys that can that can narrate and keep your interest. He can talk about paint drying on the wall, and I love to hear it. Just—he just got one of those kind of voices. But he's also a great writer, and he writes some of the biographies. He writes Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, biography. Uh, he's got a small work on uh, Abraham Lincoln, several other of the presidents, and doesn't leave out their flaws, but kind of, and he's one of the best, kind of angles it. I'm thankful that God's given us a word that helps us to understand that God doesn't gloss over and ignore our sins, but that he can use us. He will accept us when we turn away from those and come back to him. And the proof positive that helps us to appreciate David the most is where we'll close. Luke 15. And the prodigal son. He wants his father to be dead. He wants the inheritance. He goes off to the far country. He does every ugly, terrible thing. You can just leave your imagination to that. And then he's broken. And then he comes to himself and he comes back home. And how God receives David is the way the prodigal son's father receives him. He runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He accepts him back as a son. He doesn't make him take a lesser role. And he rejoices. As we struggle with our sins, and we turn away from them, and we make our way back home, understand our God has not changed in that regard. Thank you very much for your attention.